I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bread and circuses. Sounds like an amusing amuse-bouche, right? Well, during the second century, the Roman poet Juvenal, best known for his satirical political commentary, used this metonymic meaning to voice democratic displeasure of public services and policies, which were often obscured by diversion and distraction. The degeneration of civic responsibility among a common populace was not so uncommon then, and certainly can be seen as commonplace now. How does bread play a part in politics, you ask? Well, withholding grain has been part of party lines, as well as a catalyst for war. Though the fight still continues to bring bread to those impoverished and underfed around the world, we urge you to chew on this. Become as active as a sourdough starter and be part of the bread revolution. Everyone has a voice, and all those, those voices are very important to us. Some of those voices are involved in the access of what we do, so bringing price down so that we're not working in some elitist manner, but we're working in a price point that people can afford to have good food, in this case, bread or baked products. And um, that means high yield for the farmer. So again, it goes back to the farmer, and then that carries through the whole system. So we're, we're not interested in developing things that are only available to a few people. Stephen Jones is right. We all have a voice in this conversation, and we all deserve affordable bread. Apollonia Polam believes bread nourishes us even deeper than hunger and that bakers are high-minded and honourable, a principle of which great civilizations are founded on. So we have have a collection of books on breads. Um, They range from techniques of baking bread to uh, technical aspects of flour milling or... um, inventories of bread uh, bakeries, as well as contemporary books on grains, on fermentation, on the bread baking world at large. Our collection stems from an interest in bread beyond um, its physical nature and the desire to think of what was the role of bread in the societies, the civilization that has developed over the centuries, millennia. Um, and my, my father's theory was that bread links to just about any domain of knowledge. And I, and I agree with him that, that there is a bread link uh, to just about most experiences. Uh, revolutions were started uh, for most of the time for the lack of food, and often bread is that symbol. Um, in Russia, women asking for bread triggering the Russian Revolution. In France, the French Revolution uh, started by um, a peasant rebellion over bread. If you think you're paying a little bit extra for your favorite loaf, think of bread as currency rather than as value. While many of us have the good fortune to even have bread, Stephen Jones argues where there's quantity, there should still be quality. I think there's a there's a place for everything. I, I think we need to not forget the, you know, if we're if we're talking about twelve or fourteen dollar loaves of bread, that's great. 
let's not forget the people that can't afford those, right? And and the the people that are spending twelve or fourteen bucks for a loaf of bread are spending six or eight for a cup of coffee. You know, there are people that that can't afford that either. They shouldn't be left out of a of a good food movement. I don't believe so, and and our whole lab does not believe that. So, so we work hard on the notion of of good food should be as uh, affordable or even cheaper than crappy food, right? <laughs> it's 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 a weird, it's an odd, uh, it's an odd juxtaposition that that food with a lot of crap in it is cheaper than food without a lot of crap in it. So so I don't I don't get how that works, right? So that's something we do is we take things out of our food first of all. So certainly our breads and and baked goods, we minimize what's actually in there, and then we strive in a in a what we feel is a meaningful way to bring the price point down and that that occurs through yield that occurs through technique of course baking more affordable bread starts where every loaf does the seed glenn roberts of anson mills feeds his community by opening up his personal seed vault rather than forcing people to reach deep into their pockets I never thought about the inequities of social anything until about a decade in. Then I started thinking about what does it mean to feed your community? Because we don't monetize seed. I thought that was enough. Just give free seed away all the time. Whoever asks for it, free seed. Sure. You want, you want rice seed from me? I don't care where you are. You'll get if it's justified. I'm not going to give you seed if you say, I'm going to get this seed and throw it away. Or if I can tell that you're not going to plant it, I'm not going to give you rice seed because what the hell would you do with it? It's got a hull on it. Uh, so we do jury some, but essentially we don't monetize seed ever. And so given that fact, that's part of feeding the community. But I found out that wasn't enough about a decade ago. So then we started community seed programs. Then we started farm hubs. And the farm hubs are fair trade at situ. I provide equipment, I provide free seed, I provide expertise, and we drill it in, and then everything from there is fair market. As Steve Martin, yes, the comedian, once said, if you've got a dollar and you spend 29 cents on a loaf of bread, you've still got 71 cents left. But if you've got 17 grand and you spend 29 cents on a loaf of bread, you've still got 17 grand. There's a math lesson for you. The humor is in the frame of reference. With regulations keeping loaves from leavening, thankfully we can find levity and selfless visionaries out there working to improve our lot. Nathan Mervold, founder of The Cooking Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread, notes that the Romans were bread's first regulatory party, using stamps to identify what was rightfully theirs, as well as setting a standard. The Romans weren't the only folks that regulated their bread. Um... Although an amusing aside of the Romans is that they developed ways of identifying their bread, which is sort of the first food branding, almost literally brand. They made little brass uh, stamps called bread stamps that could be baked onto the bread that would show you, tell you which person made it. And that was an important part of traceability. It was sort of the the Romans' version of transparency. (laughs) If we found bread with your stamp in it that was adulterated, man, you would be in trouble. Well, uh, through the Middle Ages, same thing happened. Um, Baking was a specific guild. There were all kinds of regulations about baking. In our mind's eye, the baker is a benevolent sort. 
putting a little bit extra into each loaf. But this was not always the case. There are regulations about milling also. Um, in Canterbury Tales, okay, so now we're up to the 1400s, uh, Canterbury Tales has lots of tales about the baker and the miller and the miller's wife, and some of that was the sort of R-rated things that Chaucer needed to have to be a popular novelist. But it was widely believed that millers were millers and bakers were both dishonest. There are lots of medieval records about uh, millers or uh, bakers being incarcerated or put to death for various adulterants that they put in. Um, it, it was a great example of consumer protection in a sense. It was people relied on this stuff for their very life, and the idea that people would cheat with it just didn't sit well. The flower is goon. There is nay more to tell. The bren, as best I can, now most I sell. An excerpt from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Medieval millers weren't the only ones meddling. Governments worldwide have often subsidized flour to keep bread prices low. Sometimes, though, they have crummy intentions. This is the case in, in many uh, countries in the Arab world where the government has subsidized over the years flour because bread is central to people's lives and being able to buy it inexpensively is critical. And one of the ways that, uh, that especially uh, governments that uh, were oppressive or, or uh, had very... Uh, Tough regimes, let's put it this way, uh, would keep the, their broader populations happy and quelled by making sure that they would, could buy their staples at low prices. And bread is, is considered a critical staple. And so they uh, did this by subsidizing flour, and they did this by also subsidizing the production through government-run uh, bakeries. And uh, many of those countries, unfortunately, are also rife with corruption, and so if you can imagine, 50 years ago, the subsidy started, and over time, the quality of the product uh, got worse and worse as more and more hands were reaching in and taking profits out of the government subsidies. These days, Irish weather forecasts are often accompanied by blight warnings, along with advice on second layers and rainwear. In 19th century Ireland, the most immediate warning signs weren't as forthcoming. The Great Famine began in 1845 with catastrophic crop failure, though other underlying causes weren't as spontaneous. High corn exports, which provided millions of British workers with cheap bread, left the Irish working class dependent on a single crop. As Christine Keneally, director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute, puts it, Ireland became a breadbasket for its rapidly industrialising neighbour to the east. Well, I mean, it's the standard thin white paper bag with the price already printed on it, uh, best used by, you know, uh, Sparacinos, uh, Palayatia, whatever. But it, but it, that's also kind of, you know, older, uh, you know, it is definitely branding, but I think it goes back to this idea of simplicity, affordability, economy. Um, you know, the classy breads of yesteryear were the soft white breads those are the ones you wanted to buy that would last for a couple days. And 
if you know if you look at bread baking you know uh, your choice your formulation in relation to class say 300 years ago people would formulate breads um, if you were wealthy you got the bread with the milk and the lard and the and the butter and the eggs and all this other other stuff which sounds like additive uh, addled bread to me because that bread kept for like four or five days and um, you know you could pull out your dentures your wooden dentures and kind of gnaw kind of mash together the the bread whereas if you ate the bread that the normal poor folk wheat flour uh, ground egg corn sawdust and water and as time has gone on much mass-produced bread continued to make use of milling scraps from wheat to wood George De Pasquale of the Essential Baking Company has no patience for that industrial fluff. And neither did Julia Child, who he quoted saying, How can any country be great if their bread tastes like Kleenex? That's so perfect. Uh, the, uh, the whole Chorleywood thing, you know, ruined so bread for so long. And it was so great to see uh, such an interest in whole grain bread again. And all this, this buzz around that is just an amazing thing. It's great. In the United States, regional pride and whole grain resurgence has done wonders for taking bread out of the paper goods aisle. If you'd rather have government protocol leaning towards subsidies and health protocol, not bread shapes and grain inclusions, here's a tissue. In the United States, bread regulations just haven't ever been as important as they traditionally were in Europe. And I'm not really sure why. Maybe part of it is the more laissez-faire aspects of the U.S. Eventually, of course, we had a set of um, regulations about flour. Um, You can read them today. They're currently in force. Among other things, they say how many grams of uh, insect parts and how many grams of rat hairs and rat feces are tolerable in a given weight of flour. And the answer is not zero. <laughs> it's not zero because it's really hard to keep rodents away and rodents and bugs away from your grain. Um, uh, another adulterant, accidental adulterant uh, that figured heavily in um, throughout history was that if grain got moldy, either in the field or in storage, it could be attacked by a mold called ergo. And ergo contains a whole bunch of noxious chemicals. It contains things that can kill you. It also contains hallucinogens. Hallucinogens, actually, they're chemically very similar to LSD. This is a condition where you you feel that your limbs are on fire. So uh, it turns out that ergotism caused uh, mass hysteria a number of times. And the most intriguing example was in the United States in the late 1600s. Uh, there was a very wet summer. That very wet summer definitely led to some level of ergotism in the grain and the people who consumed it. And that was also the summer of 1692 when we had the Salem Witch Trials. 
And there are people who suggest that the wacko testimony of these people who claimed that they saw uh, all kind, all manner of witchcraft occurring were actually people that were tripping on uh, mold adulterated grain. Nathan was referring to a limb condition called St. Anthony's Fire. But just like Judd Nelson's character in St. Elmo's Fire, the movie, long live the 80s, it will take some serious party switching to change how our American government deals with preserving culture and tradition. There are a plethora of food labels out there now. Organic, fair trade, all-natural, non-GMO, made in Brooklyn. But their meanings can be trickier to decipher. And their intentions, downright dubious. Dan Leader, founder of the artisan bread bakery, Bread Alone, is particularly interested in how we assign labels and stickers to supermarket brand breads. I would say that, you know, one of the things that we struggle with, and I think that every artisan baker in America struggles with, and that is our vocabulary. So I can say we make artisan bread, okay? And um, you can go to any supermarket across the country now, and there will be a big rack that says, you know, artisan bread. And those breads are made from very large bread factories, and that bread is power-baked frozen. And, I mean, I can go to the supermarket a minute and a half from bread alone, where we're located now, and there will be a big rack of bread that says artisan bread, and it's never seen a human. I mean, there's humans in the bakery, but it's, it's not. It's a factory-made power-baked frozen bread in the supermarkets. Um, basically pull it from the freezer, heat it up, and they put it in, in an artisan bread bag. And, um, you know, it seems warm and fresh, but, it, you know, it, it, it just doesn't taste good. Hmm. But it's everywhere. And I think that the artisan breaking, baking movement in this country uh, is going to have a challenge, um, and we have that challenge, is how do we differentiate our products? How do we communicate to our customers that, you know, it really is an artisan product? Um, how do we ensure that it, does not, it doesn't get compromised by these other products? And I think it's a challenge. I mean, I, I know many, many bakers around the country, and um, it's a real issue. The French dealt with definition head-on and didn't faire la tête, as Eric Kaiser explains. You know, in France, we have some law. For example, artisanal means you need to, to, to mix and to bake in the same place, for example. This is number one. Number two, when we say baguette tradition, it means that we cannot use improver inside the bread. And it was the moment that we coming with our uh, sourdough machine to take care of the levain, so it's starting to be a revolution, not a big revolution, because we are going back to the past. We use a recipe from the past and we adapt in, the, in our contemporary time. So, and this is what I have tried to do everywhere and give power to a baker to be happy with their job. In France, they have this little thing. It's called ici fait la main, you know. So they have this little, this little emblem of a hand, and it's the the the, the National Baking Association um, uh, will allow bakers to put this emblem on the bakery if they meet certain criteria. 
Okay, that means somebody has to come out and look at the production, and they have to show that they really make the bread by hand, and that they're a true artisan. You know, we simply don't have the history and culture. You know, the kind of the artisan bread culture here. Like, who's going to do that? Who's going to go around and say this is a real artisan baker? Even the bread bakers guild has issues because they get so much money from you know big factories that they that every time they try to answer this question of how how are they going to do this, they get into a big there's a big internal argument. Mm-hmm. So I think that it would help, but I think it's up to all of us, you know, with our websites and with our marketing material and our branding material to tell really good stories. What's the line between good bread and bad, and who gets to determine it? Historically, the desire for white flour has been pure and plain. There's a parallel between bread and society. William Rubel points out this distinction, the bread line. And my, my basic concept is where there's gold, there's white flour. If the underlying wheat can support it. Ancorn and emmer don't make a white flour. Durham wheat that makes pasta doesn't really make a white flour. But you get white flour from common bread wheat and from spelt, which are, by the way, both the same species. It's called triticum estivum. And the, the most common one, bread wheat, is triticum estivum subspecies estivum. And spelt is triticum estivum subspecies spelta. So they're they're in the very, very, very same family. So whether they did sift, we don't know. But what we do know is that human cultures are um, almost always organized on social, with social stratification. And what we also can tell is, what we do know from the record, is that coarser, going back to Roman period, that, that, that coarser flowers were associated with the breads made for poorer people and whiter, lighter flowers with breads made for rich, richer people. And you just have to decide how far you feel you can extrapolate our own culture where the farm worker eats one kind of bread and probably the you and I listening to this radio show are, are, are eating a, a, different, a different bread. They, 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 they both are refined, they're both white, but maybe one is in the form of a boule and has a crusty crust. Maybe it's sour leavened and we're very, very proud of it. And the other one is, comes in a plastic bag, pre-sliced and wasn't made with sourdough, was made with yeast and maybe even some chemical leavenings. But nutritionally, of course, these breads are the same. We'll let you chew on that. And we'll be right back with more Modernist Breadcrumbs. Here at Modernist Breadcrumbs, we're all about celebrating the best in baking. And when an entire festival is dedicated to one of the oldest breakfast foods in existence, we take notice. Every year since 1996, the World Porridge Making Championship has taken place in the Scottish Highlands village of Carbridge. And in 2016, the winning porridge, traditionally a Scottish dish, came from Bob Moore, the 88-year-old founder of Bob's Red Mill in Milwaukee, Oregon. Bob... Tell us what it's like to be at the World Porridge Making Championship. Well, it's a long way from nowhere. Carbridge is about 750 people, and it's the most charming Scottish village that you've ever been in in your life. Having never been there before, I was just totally 
enamored by the whole thing, the people and everything. We went over there as the sixth year that we've attended with hopes of winning the Golden Spurtle this time. The company, Bob's Red Mill, has had experience there before, but not Bob. Anyway, when the contest starts, they all start with a dram of Scotch whiskey. <laughs> Halfway through, they did another one. <laughs> and when I did win at the end, I had to have another one. So <laughs> it's, it's, it is an experience for, for someone like myself. So they had to judge Bob's Red Mill oats between 18 or 20 other people who were doing the same thing and, and cooking it in their own way and whatnot. So that was a given. And that's what the Golden Spurtle is awarded on as to who the judges feel that had the best oats. I was very proud to win that. They had uh, three heats, elimination heats, and I had to win each one in order to win the Golden Spurtle. So I was a busy boy for the period of time that the Golden Spurtle was on, which was several hours. It was fun. I felt like I was in some kind of a dream. You can add a little more water, a little less water, but really, it's <laughs> all I did was just make our steel cutouts, and they are now the steel cutouts out in the stores, I hope, all over the world that have the Golden Spurtle right on them because as soon as we won, why well, we changed the package right away to show that we had won with these lovely oats, and they are lovely oats. <laughs> Michael, we take good food seriously. It's amazing how much flavor, energy, and vitality you can get by just simply leaving whole grains whole. That's why we're committed to creating the best whole grain foods in the world at Bob's Red Mill. For more on that, as well as some delicious recipe ideas and valuable coupon offers, check out bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Robert A. Heinlein, often called the Dean of Science Fiction Writers, may be from the sci-fi genre, but his commentary on bread and circuses are a stark reality to his surreal worlds. Quote, What is supposed to happen in a democracy is that each sovereign citizen will always vote in the public interest for the safety and welfare of all. But what does happen is that he votes for his own self-interest as he sees it, which for the majority translates as bread and circuses. Bread and circuses is the cancer of democracy, the fatal disease for which there is no cure. Democracy often works beautifully at first, but once a state extends the franchise to every warm body, be he producer or parasite, that day marks the beginning of the end of the state. For when the plebes discover that they can vote themselves bread and circuses without limit, and that the productive members of the body politic cannot stop them, they will do so till the state bleeds to death. Or in its weakened condition, the state succumbs to an invader. The barbarians enter Rome. Whether nonfiction or fable, as publicans we have the right to know the truth and consequence. But just like Marie Antoinette once said, when everybody else is losing their heads, it is important to keep yours. Well, let me, first of all, mention the first famous myths about the croissant, because you're probably going to hit them if you read it. One is that it was invented at a siege of in 1686 by the Turks. Uh, the Lalus Gastronomique, as Alan Davidson pointed out decades ago, um, takes that further and claims it was in Budapest. 
when in fact the Turks weren't besieging Budapest at all, it was the Christians who were besieging the Turks. Uh, at any rate, that myth is easily disproven because the kipfel, which was a, the crescent-shaped Austrian pastry, existed before that siege. And in fact, as a roll in general, it's documented back to the 10th century, as a crescent-shaped roll at least uh, a few decades before the siege. The other famous myth, of course, is that Marie Antoinette brought it to France, and that's just disproven by the simple fact of looking at records of the time and seeing that there's just no mention of her publicly uh, introducing any bread. She may have made some, she had a, a German baker, and he may have made some for her, but certainly she never popularized it. It would have been impolitic to popularize it, because she had enough trouble with people thinking she was Austrian in France at the time anyway. As misunderstood a figure as Marie Antoinette was, Apollonia feels learning from global bread history connects our societies on a personal level, as humankind. There's this misquote where people think that Marie Antoinette, it was attributed to Marie Antoinette, the let them eat brioche. The funny and irony of history is that actually Marie Antoinette has nothing to do with that sentence, and it was, it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And more recently, uh, the Arab Springs uh, in Tunisia, I was struck by this picture in Le Monde's um, newspaper in France that had a horde of men holding a round piece of bread. And when I ran into this picture, my first instinct was, oh, how French. Of course, they would pick a picture with guys holding bread. And then I thought, but wait a second. These, are peop these people are not faking it. These people are actually hoarding bread because that's what they're asking for and of all symbolisms like it's like I in Paris can understand this guy in Tunisia asking for bread how cool is that so really bread is beyond its political aspects is really an international currency and understanding that and this was really the education that my sister and I received from our parents that was really Un unbelievably strong of symbols, but also um, connections and signification for the future for me. So that to me reminds me every day just how much and why do I love my, my business. For me, bread um, feeds me both physically, but also intellectually. Um, I love, love, love to discover new baking techniques push back boundaries trying things and oftentimes what you see in the store is only the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on in the bakehouse but overall what I enjoy about baking intrinsically is the simplicity of the ingredients and yet the very very far deep um, connections it has with who we are as a society as a world as a planet From the outside, the Arab Spring may have seemed as sudden as the changing of the seasons. However, Egypt and Syria had also long been reliant on large wheat imports funded by foreign aid. In 1977, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat's attempt to cancel an IMF subsidy was met with intense rioting and subsequent military control of bakeries. In Syria, farmers were among the first to move against President Assad whose divestment from agriculture had exacerbated drought in the area. As Jeremy Shapiro points out, bread has always played a role in war.
Napoleon said it, you're, you're basically, you're feeding an army, you know, they live on their stomach. Bread can be military ration, reason for rioting, and regular sustenance, all at the same time. War, what is it good for? Communal ovens, apparently. But it's like, you know, from two sides of the planet, or thinking like American with French. And it reminded me of my mom, who lived in the south of France during the Second War. Uh, and they had this whole production of making their own, like, two or three kilo breads, stamping them with their family name, and then giving it to the local oven guy who was doing everybody's bread and baking it there in the village. While the weight of bread laws were heavy, taking away a sinquanon does not tread lightly. And uh, throughout uh, history, in every society, there have been bread riots. Now, that includes bread riots in England. There were examples of great etchings of Parliament being surrounded by bread riots uh, well into the 19th century uh, in France. And in fact, arguably in France today, there are bread riots because when French farmers get mad, they bring all of their uh, tractors to Paris and and shut everything down. Uh, And uh, as recently as 2015, uh, there was huge bread riots in Egypt. And they were rioting over the uh, price and availability of bread because it's such a staple. I'm not sure what the gas mileage on a John Deere is, but fueled by passion, I'm sure it can make it to the capital. There we can change policy and find peace of mind and preservation, the same way Germany did with its bread registry. Maria Speck, who grew up in Germany and in Greece, explains. looking today um, at like 3,200 bread specialties and they're actually in a registry now in Germany, you know, so they've collected, they've started to basically collect them, 3,200 bread specialties and 300 different types of bread. So, I mean, that's so amazing, right? And then, you know, a third of our bread in Germany is still... um, to this day, baked in stone or wood-fired ovens. I mean, you see what a large passion that still is, you know, despite, of course, we have industrialization, we have cheap breads that are really bad, you know, so I'm not, you know, I know, I mean, obviously, it goes everywhere in the same direction, right? But we still basically have a very large um, passion and also bakers now in Germany that also go look at local grains, just like we do here also. Francisco Magoya, head chef at the Bread Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread, points out that in Germany, this careful categorization of diversity in grain is reflected in law and regulation. There is legislation of what you can call what. And also, in, in I will also say that they have like a lot more varieties of rye flour, clearly distinguished from one from the other. Where here we just have like, it's either light, medium, dark, pumpernickel, you know, where in Germany it's a little bit more specific as to what type of rye flours and, and why they're, you know, here dark is, there are many kinds of dark rye flour, which really depends on how much bran and germ they contain which is why in Europe you're going to see a lot of these rye flowers. They're going to have a number next to them, and that number is always going to mean what ash content they contain. So the higher the ash content, the 
the darker the, the rye flour is, the lower the ash content, the wider it's going to be. When it comes to legislating in the kitchen, Mark Furstenberg keeps an open house, as Christina Peterson-Magoya found out when she worked for him. Previously, Mark was on the White House staff in 1962 through 1963, before President Kennedy was assassinated. At the time, Attorney General Robert Kennedy had been traveling through Appalachia, West Virginia in particular, depressed by the poverty he had witnessed. Soon after the formation of the Peace Corps, Robert Kennedy hoped to create a domestic version and hired Mark as part of a study group focused on documenting poverty in America in the face of an ingrained skepticism. As an unencumbered young man, Mark had the opportunity to travel around the country to Appalachia, the Native American reservations, and other rural areas of the Midwest. Coming from a family of social workers, the work felt natural to Mark, and yet he was deeply affected by what he saw. When I went to the bread line, he had a really wide variety of team members working for him, and Mark deeply cared about each individual team member, and not just as an employee, but as a person. Mark, um, in many cases, facilitated um, their their paperwork to the U.S. He had he almost had the U.N. of bread bakers in his bakery, and also Breadline was also a restaurant as well. So he had an area that was um, dedicated to food preparation, and this was before I think local and. Um, ensuring you had high quality ingredients in your product. So Mark really invested in that philosophy and really believed in that philosophy. Mark was many things before he was a baker. When he finally came to make bread his vocation, it was on the advice of a village. A few nights later, I went out with my old friend, Barney Frank, who had been unable to come to the party, and I began talking to him about my career. And Barney is not the most patient of men. Anyone who knows him knows that. And he erupted and said, stop whining. People who, people who have high-risk careers, who choose high-risk careers the way you have, the way I have, have downtimes as well as good times. So if you're unhappy, do something about it. And at first, of course, my feelings were hurt. He wasn't being very sympathetic, but then I realized he was right. And so I began to think about what I wanted to do. Fifty years old, I didn't think it was too late to start something else. And my sons who were living with me and I distributed a questionnaire that my brother, a sociologist, had helped us lay out. And we went all around the neighborhood that uh, surrounded my sister's bookstore in Upper Northwest Washington and asked people what they wanted in that neighborhood. And it was particularly food-oriented because I had decided that food had always been my hobby, so I would see if I could do something, be a greengrocer or be a, uh, a cheesemonger. But when the questionnaires came back, and they came back in great numbers, and people said overwhelmingly, why don't we have good bread in Washington? There's no bread in Washington. I lived in Brussels. I lived in Paris. We always had wonderful bread. I thought, 
I've always been a home baker. I can do that, which was silly, of course. But I did it. I opened Marvelous Market in July of 1990. When Mark set out to meet the needs of his neighborhood, he wasn't hoping to line his own pockets. Unfortunately, when it comes to feeding larger populations, the equation is less selfless. Actually, to be fair, uh, one of the things that I think is a giant problem with bread is that it has spent such a long time being the ultimate commodity food that we optimized it for cost. Cost, 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 cost. And to the extent we optimized it for quality, what we meant was sort of uniformity. And by God, we succeeded. Uh, Wheat is as cheap as dirt. Okay? In eastern Washington, uh, wheat is the main crop that's grown. And if you drive down uh, a street in a town in eastern Washington, you will see the current price of wheat put up on uh, electronic displays the same way you'll see the time and the temperature (laughs) in other towns. Uh, And it's usually about $6 a bushel. And a bushel is 60 pounds. Uh, We found a great U.S. Department of Agriculture study of all of the costs that go into a typical loaf of supermarket bread as of a couple years ago. And they have the cost of energy. They have the cost of insurance. They have the cost of the bag, the packaging, the cost of advertising. The lowest number, what the farmer gets, five cents. That is the farmer's share of buying a... Uh, loaf of supermarket bread. And so a little bit you have to say, hey, don't complain about what crap the bread is. Shit, the farmer only got five cents. What do you expect? At germination, there are a number of physical factors which determine how much water trickles down to the seed. Looking out from within one system, the flow of ingredients and profit may seem impossible to stem. Not so for Stephen Jones. So for us in the in the bread lab, we work outside of the commodity market. So so most of the most of the wheat grown in this country, in fact, you know the the greater the total, you can almost uh, exaggerate a touch and say all of it is developed for an industrial system, and and flavor is not a target within that system. The targets are white flour the amount of white flour and then how that flour would act in an industrial mixing system and things like that. If you take yourself out of that system, and, and I should say first that, that most of the wheats in that system, or all of them, are basically the same thing, right? They're developed the same way. They're developed for the same endpoint. Once you get out of that system, now you can, you can favor different things. One thing you can favor is flavor. You can pull that out. Also, technique and things like that. How is it? Is it going to be mixed not in a high-speed mixing machine, but by hand or at some scale for a craft baker with smaller equipment at lower speeds, where you have some of the craft left into the baking process? So, um, for us, we use wheats that probably are not acceptable in a commodity system because 
our latest one was was never has never been made into white flour. Well, that's that's novel. So that hasn't been done in this country in probably 120 years. That a, a new wheat was developed specifically for whole wheat, uh, for whole wheat baking. So what that means is we don't know what the white flour yield is because that's not important to us. But if the bottom line is as deep as you're willing to go, there are ways to coexist and maintain yields. Harry P. Moller, professor of bread at Johnson & Wales University in North Carolina, outlines a more creative solution. I really enjoy, you know, when I came down over here, but part of it, it was like, what are you talking about? Decoy fields. You know, when you, have, when you talk about the decoy fields, that there is a field for the geese and there is a field for the deer. So rather than coming to your fields over there and eating your crop, there's something that is actually more appealing to them. So rather than chasing them away, you say, no, if you cannot beat them, you know, give them something they like better. We have to share the planet a little bit. And for the geese, the same thing. And it was like super, super interesting. To the point that my 18-year-old daughter was actually, I love this stuff over there. And we put a nice little presentation together for Clemson over there. And I think that's the only reason she got inside. It wasn't her grades, I'm telling you this one. But I made some, I made some scones out of the poly crops. I made some crackers out of the poly crops. And we, nice. then the bread, of course, we made a nice little presentation. And then she uh, presented that. And I was talking to you already. This is not only poly crop, what, what you're doing. It's all over the world, you know. In Africa, they make their push and pull system where they have plants next to their sorghum that is uh, pushing the stem borer mm-hmm. uh, uh, away because that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it has an offensive aroma. They don't go there. And all the... The little pests that are going through, they get pulled by another plant, but they do not attack the, the sorghum that they are growing there. You know, and it's like, this could be, this could be uh, solving all of our problems. How can we feed 9 billion people, not with Monsanto, with polycrop or push and pull? So I thought that would be, that would be really good, and it resonates with young, with young people too. While certain practices may vary from field to field and country to country depending on the whim of the proprietor, good ideas are international. Or so says Lionel Vatinet. There's a beauty of uh, to be a baker and for me it's a reflection of my travel, my travel uh, around the world, my travel you know, here in the North, Central, South America and it's so wide open uh, here in the United States, you know, the... Uh, the creativity don't have any borders and uh, um, tradition, you know, we're getting some definitely from where I'm coming from and uh, now is uh, wide open and we can use uh, sustainability locally and uh, is all beneficial for our consumer at the end of the day. The term broadcast originally refers to scattering seed in all directions rather than in organized rows. Whether or not you find our own delivery more haphazard than intended, it's an interesting thought. What happens when a baker begins to scatter their produce in a given area? So Jean Manipri, when my grandfather started his business, was an area that was known for having a lot of artists. It was an up-and-coming area. Uh, There were philosophers, artists... And very quickly, my grandfather started exchanging bread for artwork uh, between artists of the neighborhoods. And slowly, um, those uh, art pieces um, 
cupboards, the back room of the bakery. Uh, it's traditionally the little back room that's used as an office. Um, so our little office is covered in bread paintings. Uh, and being that moment, that time, that place, uh, we made some wonderful encounters. And my father met Salvador Dali in the late 60s, who commissioned my father after two, three years to make a whole bedroom made out of bread. And he wanted to know if he had mice in his room, which he probably had afterwards. And that bread and art link has remained in the company. We ha still have new bread paintings and drawings uh, that we hang in the back room of the bakery. We have a collection of books on breads uh, that are uh, my father's initiative to look at bread beyond um, the physicality of the foods, uh, but look at its broader cultural, uh, socioeconomical context. Um, and we also have drawings um, and, um, and other medias on the bread-baking world. Unfortunately, we can't all kick it with the cool kids. In ancient times, the majority of us would have subsisted on crumbs from the intellectual table. Well, today we have a job titles of journalist and novelist and so forth. Uh, once upon a time, simple ability to read and write gave you a profession. You could be a scribe. Um, only highly educated people did that. And so uh, for a good chunk of recorded history, the history that was recorded was by the extremely rare people who were literate. It, not so rare, perhaps, for the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, much more rare, uh, oddly, during the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. Uh, so they tended to write uh, about what interested them or for each other. So here you, def you find descriptions of uh, what peasants uh, eat or do. Uh, it's usually some curious person who is sort of writing a general uh, treatise on things. The uh, Pliny the Elder's treatise is his natural history, where he talks all about animals and plants and just every damn thing. Um, you wouldn't write a manual for poor people to read because poor people didn't read. Uh, and by the way, before Gutenberg, books were incredibly precious and extremely expensive and only kept in a small number of places. Now, uh, we're very fortunate, for example, that the Egyptians uh, had a thing about depicting everyday life. So the walls of their tombs, um, their papyruses, the things they, their monuments uh, all had these depictions of everyday life, it was like a thing for them. Uh, the even funnier th thing is in the tombs, they would often build little dioramas that almost looked like somebody's model train set. Uh, but instead of it being obviously trains, it would be like, oh, here's a bakery, here's a butcher shop, here's a farm, here's a um, artisan's workshop, and they'd have all of these little man these little dolls basically doing all of the work. So the Egyptians thought it was cool for everybody to see how everyone did. Uh, not as much, though, in the Western tradition. Uh, so you see every now and then there will be examples of things that where someone would write about what was happening with the poor. 
Um, but it wasn't until you, you got widespread literacy in books and the Gutenberg Revolution. So by the time of the 1500s, you have a lot of people that are writing about the poor, although not as much about the recipes. The pen is mightier than the sword. Another metonymic adage. Coined in the mid-1800s as advocacy for independent press and free speech, let's now say the loaf is loftier than its fodder, and that bread is bigger than its grain build. MFK Fisher once wrote, Perhaps this war will make it simpler for us to go back to some of the old ways we knew before we came over to this land and made the big money. Perhaps, even, we will remember how to make good bread again. It does not cost much. It is pleasant. One of the almost hypnotic businesses, like a dance from ancient ceremony, leaves you filled with peace and the house filled with one of the world's sweetest smells. But it takes a lot of time. If you can find that, the rest is easy. And if you cannot rightly find it, make it. For probably there is no chiropractic treatment, no yoga exercise, no hour of meditation in a music-throbbing chapel that will leave you emptier of bad thoughts than this homely ceremony of making bread. This has been Episode 5 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Against the Grain, on politics. In the next episode, Balls and Sticks, we'll be talking about shapes, scoring, and semiotics. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. In the next episode, we'll be talking to some hot cross bakers. Jeez, Connor, calm down. No need to get riled up. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.